Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for August 1st, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone had a great weekend, lots of fun, um, got a chance to get out maybe, take advantage of some of the cool things going around our state and end in Albuquerque. Uh, the African American Performing Arts Center, I know, hosted the main event for TEDxABQ on Saturday. Gene Grant had a great interview with Teresa Robinson this past week on our Facebook Live series. She's the founder of Graphic Bliss LLC, and she was also one of the speakers at the event. Obviously, the event has already happened, so some of that discussion is a little bit obsolete, but it's really interesting. I'd encourage you to listen to it because when Gene and Teresa start out, they spend quite a bit of time talking about Albuquerque's entertainment footprint, how the city attracts events, how we can make our city more of a destination for big acts, and how that can help us grow economically, obviously, but culturally, too. I think it's really an interesting discussion, so if you want, please go on our New Mexico and Focus Facebook page and watch that. Now, normally I'd run through some headlines here at the top of the show, but we have quite a few engaging interviews I want to get to this week, starting with some expert insight on the historic drying that we're seeing along the Rio Grande. Here's Laura Paskus, executive producer of Our Land, uh, with some context on that dire situation that we're facing. Last week, the Rio Grande within the Albuquerque reach started to dry. On Monday, there were five miles dry in the city, 12 miles dry near Las Lunas, and 32 in the Socorro area. Upstream rains still re-wet the river here and there, but this drying will keep happening throughout the summer and the fall. The state of the Rio Grande is something we've long covered. The river in southern New Mexico is dry much of the year, and more summers than not in the past 20, the middle Rio Grande has dried downstream of Albuquerque. But this year, this is the first time in decades the Albuquerque stretch has turned to sand. It's by no means unexpected, though the sight of that empty channel is shocking to all of us. In the past, when the river dried in Albuquerque, that's because all the water could be diverted for irrigation, for example. But there was still water upstream, stored in reservoirs on the Chama River, a tributary of the Rio Grande. Today, those same reservoirs, Heron Lake is standing at only 17% full. El Vado, which is under construction, is at 2% full. Abiquiu, 51%. I looked back at the data, and those three reservoirs are currently holding a quarter what they did in 1983, the last time the river is said to have dried in the Albuquerque stretch. Meanwhile, downstream, Elephant Butte Reservoir, the largest in our state, is at 4% capacity. Caballo Reservoir, 9%. There are many reasons for the drying and much of the river is still diverted for irrigation, for example. But the simplest way to explain the drying is the Rio Grande has too many demands placed upon it, especially now in our warmer climate. We'll keep covering New Mexico's rivers. This week, I talk with University of New Mexico Professor Emeritus Cliff Dahm. He's been studying desert rivers for decades, and he explains what river drying means for different species that call the river and its ecosystem home. Welcome back to the show, Professor Dahm. Thank you. 
So a few years ago, we were out in the Sandias with you talking about intermittent and ephemeral waterways. Um, today, we're talking about a perennial river, the Rio Grande, that has dried. Um, as we're talking right now, the Rio Grande has dried for some significant stretches in the Albuquerque Reach, near Socorro, and also near Las Lunas. I wanted to talk to you since this is kind of, you're an expert in this field, um, you know, anyone can see the obvious facts as a river dries, um, impacts to fish, for example, fish need water to survive. What are some of the other ways in which a drying river affects different species or the ecosystem as a whole? Well, let me start by making uh, one point that I think is important as background. And that is uh, intermittent uh, rivers that only flow part of the time uh, are prevalent worldwide. There are more rivers, miles worldwide that are intermittent than are perennial. Uh, we happen to live in New Mexico and the one river that is so near and dear to so many of our hearts is the Rio Grande. And we think of the Rio Grande flowing through Albuquerque as being a perennial reach. It has dried before, so it, it uh, does on occasion have intermittence. Uh, that intermittence is going to have effects on the biotic communities that are there. You mentioned the fish. But in addition, uh, the, uh, the riparian forest that is there uh, is dependent on having a water table that's uh, usually within 10 feet or of the surface. And if uh, the water table starts to drop from this drying, we might see some uh, degradation of particularly the willows and the cottonwoods. So that's another group that are, that are vulnerable to the drying. You also have to remember that the drying is in the riverbed and there is water in the ditches, there is water in the conveyance channels, there's water in the return flows. So there is water in the system. So that may keep the water table high enough that we will uh, not have problems with the riparian forest, but we should keep an, an eye on them for sure. Many of the more um, mobile species, when a, when a reach like this dries, will probably move to new territory. Others might have adaptations to, for example, laying eggs that will be resistant to the dry phase and then hatch again when the wet phase comes. So I think the one thing that we should be very cognizant of is that there are uh, small habitats that are residual during these drying events. The drying events are usually fairly predictable. They go from very low flow to lots of puddles and pools to actual total dryness. And that transition uh, gives uh, some of the organisms time to come up with a strategy to get ready to um, over, uh, you know, to basically be successful over these dry stretches. Uh, one thing that I will always tell people is that uh, rivers are resilient. They are some of the most resilient ecosystems in the world. Um, I experienced that this when Mount St. Helens erupted and those systems came back much faster than the terrestrial ecosystems. So if we get water back in the system, I think you'll see rapid recovery. Uh, but right now, uh, it is pretty nerve-wracking to watch a river that for 40 years has flowed through the Albuquerque Reach uh, now go dry. So what about some of the smaller animals, um, you know, whether that's insects or amphibians and how they kind of all relate to one another? And do we see changes in water quality, things like that? Yeah, a lot of the, you know, a lot of these organisms that uh, maybe are less mobile uh, often will look for a refugia 
And that's one of the things I think is pretty important that we do during this drying phase is that we should map potential refugia within the reaches. You know, are there oxbow lakes? Are there wetlands? Are there areas where groundwater still is uh, uh, percolating through and producing small rivulets in the active stream? Those are the places where these organisms will go. Other, uh, some of the smaller organisms, certainly some of the aquatic insects and some of the plankton, uh, they lay eggs that are pretty resistant to drying and that they will hatch back up when they re-wet. So there are uh, strategies that uh, many of the organisms have. Birds have probably moved on to places where they have better habitat and certainly the fish, uh, uh, you know, those that are being stranded uh, that are of concern are actually being captured and moved. So what happens when a river system dries and re-wets, dries and re-wets? Um, is that a different kind of impact than when it just stays dry for a long period of time? Definitely. Uh, intermittent rivers worldwide um, are quite numerous and in terms of river miles, there's been a couple papers of late that basically points out that there are more miles of intermittent river worldwide than there is a perennial river worldwide. So this is not an uncommon occurrence. Uh, I was lucky enough to be part of a group uh, that basically has scientists from Australia and from Europe and from South America. And these kind of systems occur worldwide. And in New Mexico, about 95% of our rivers are intermittent. And so it's the 5% that are perennial that we often focus upon. But the fact that they go dry and they wet up and they go dry and they wet up is something that uh, biological communities can adapt to. Uh, the question is, you know, how often is this going to happen? If this is just something that happens episodically, probably they adapt well. If this is going to become a long-term new normal, uh, then likely uh, more changes will be, will, will be noticed. And so as you're looking worldwide at systems that um, are either intermittent, that's just how they were naturally, or a system like the Rio Grande that's maybe becoming more intermittent, um, what are some of the impacts that we really need to anticipate and be thinking about? I mean, water resources are such a key concern right now. And so limited also. Um, there are a lot of places where uh, this kind of intermittency uh, has been uh, been studied and the Australians probably lead the way because they've got a continent that is overwhelmingly xeric or dry. Uh, these wetting and drying events uh, help the organisms that have learned how to adapt to adapt. And it's actually something that becomes predictable in their life history. Uh, having 40 years without flow in the Albuquerque reach, um, it'll be very interesting to see which organisms uh, can fend off this dry spell versus those that uh, have a substantive reduction in their, in their populations. Like I say, some of the sentinels that I would look at are the riparian tree species. Um, are we going to see willow and cottonwood die back? And are we going to see replacement by things like invasive species like uh, Siberian elm and like uh, salt seed? Mm -hmm. That would be one thing, thing certainly to look at. Uh, and, then, uh, and then other uh, aquatic insects and, and fish species would be very important to be part of the analysis. 
So we're talking about how um, non-human species adapt. I'm curious what you think about how human species might need to adapt to this sort of um, warmer, drier climate in New Mexico. Uh, one of the things um, that we should start out pointing out is that this uh, drying that is occurring in the Rio Grande, it's happening all over the world. Uh, this is a byproduct of a warmer earth, and this is a byproduct of heat waves, and this is a byproduct of human needs for water competing with uh, ecosystem needs for water. So this is happening all over the world, and the fact that it's happened here in our hometown uh, is something that galvanizes people's uh, interest, and hopefully will also uh, allow us to begin the dialogue, and it's a difficult dialogue, of how do we uh, utilize our precious and limited water resources. Excellent. Well, thank you, Professor Dom, for joining me. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Dr. Dom. It really is shocking to hear what the river's going through and the ecosystem that surrounds it. But if you haven't seen the photos and the drone video that we captured above the river in Albuquerque, I promise you it will add another layer of alarm. Thank you to uh, our production team for capturing that video. It's such an important and troubling issue that we brought it up to our line opinion panel too. Our three panelists are Tom Garrity from Garrity Group Public Relations, Dave Mulryan from Mulryan Nash Advertising, and Julia Goldberg. She's a veteran of New Mexico journalism. I'm sure you've seen her name around for years now. She's the senior correspondent at the Santa Fe Reporter. Here's Jean. Now, Laura mentioned those startling numbers combined. Nearly 50 miles of the Rio Grande in New Mexico is now nothing but sand and gravel. Let's start with your initial reactions when you saw those images. Tom, do you think the rest of the public here was as shocked as many of us? Oh, absolutely. You yeah. know, we, you know, we all get very accustomed to watch, you know, seeing the Rio Grande with Rio in it and right. uh, to not have any, you know, you know, any water in it uh, in different parts is, uh, you know, is, is quite uh, jarring and awakening for everyone. And I think it gets a little confusing, too, because, uh, you know, we'll see the Rio Grande dry in parts and then we'll see, you know, the acequias filled with water for different farms and right. stuff. And so, you know, I think sometimes that creates confusion, which is why I'm glad that Laura and others are providing some education on the topic as far as why we see the acequias and canals have water in some areas, but not necessarily in the river. That's right, good points there. And uh, Julia, as Laura pointed out, as Tom mentioned, the river has had dry stretches before, but it's important to understand it's a very different situation than in the past, isn't it? There had been plenty of water stored upstream in the reservoirs, that is not the case in 2022. So this isn't a management a decision per se, this is an environmental reality. How do we impress upon our leaders of that reality? Uh, thanks, Jane. I mean, I think State Engineer Mike, Ham Mike Hammond and others made a good, um, a good stab at impressing uh, legislators earlier this week. Uh, they, of course, presented to the Water and Natural Resources Committee and they really showed the numbers and showed that as as shocking um, as these images are and the situation is not unlike so many aspects of climate change they're not they're shocking and yet not surprising mm -hmm. it's 20 years in the making this didn't happen overnight yep. um, Texas was seeing comparable problems with 
the Rio Grande in May. We're seeing similar things with the Gila, uh, with the Colorado River. This is what's happening in the southwestern U.S. And mm -hmm. so I know the state is gearing up to present a 50-year water plan to the public um, starting at the beginning of August. And there's already, I think, research and polling did a survey last year that showed the public very much understands what needs to happen in terms of allocation of resources, mm -hmm. in terms of planning for this future. And now it's sort of up to lawmakers and officials to make sure that some of those ideas are are implemented quickly. Mm -hmm. Good point there. Uh, you know, Dave, the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District, state officials, others have been pushing farmers to participate in a voluntary fallowing program. Right. Um, which, for those of us who are not farmers, that would leave their fields unplanted for a season in order to save water, kind of switch back and forth and increase flows. Does that sound like a long-term solution to you? Well, I mean, no, I mean, you know. the, the problem is, I think we need to understand, you know, 90% of all water in this country is used for agriculture. And so it's, it's you know, it is an economic issue as much as it's anything else. And I think that, you know, what we have to look at is, you, you know, and it's, a, it's, God, it is such a Gordian knot of who regulates water. We federal, state, municipal. I mean, it's just it's just really difficult to push through anything. But I think that the progress, you know, when you look in the 80s, like the Rio Grande was dry. It would always go dry, basically, in the 80s. And then, you know, we've sort of changed things around. But I think that ultimately, if you look at places like Las Vegas, they've done a very good job of using reclaimed water for it. And so the thing that I would say is more alarming than, you know, the dried out Rio Grande is the dried out, the idea that there are no ideas. Like, what is the solution? You know, we keep describing the problem. We've been describing the problem. We need to find the solutions. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. How are we going to fix this, you know, and who's going to do it? And is it going to cost money? Where's the money coming from? You know, all these questions that I think have to get answered that never get answered. Mm -hmm. You know, but Tom, when you think about it, farmers, it could be argued to take the brunt of this. You know, maybe it should be us city folk who'd be looking a little harder at what we're using before the water even gets downstream to them. Are we doing enough here in the populated areas? Well, uh, you know, there have been a lot of improvements. I guess it depends where you are. Uh, you know, because here here in the you know central New Mexico, the Albuquerque Bernalillo County Water Utility Authority, even though I, I don't like the lack of accountability that it has, they've been doing a lot of really good good work right. in water conservation. Um, you know, during this COVID time, a lot of people were spending a lot of money on home improvements. Maybe some of those had to do with water uh, fixtures. Uh, you know, as far as you know, outside of the Albuquerque area with uh, you know the uh, with farmers, you know, I, I would like to see a little bit more info as far as from, you know, what, what are the economic impacts from, from having the fields fallowed? Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, what are, what's that ripple effect to, to use that phrase, but, uh, you know, on the rural communities, because typically, you know, you would have those fields that would be filled with crops that would need to be harvested and people to do that. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's just like that economic impact piece is not there. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily as fatalistic as, as Dave, uh, and although I think Dave brings up some great points, is that, you know, water really is all about economic development. Uh, in, in you know looking at it because without water we're not going to do a whole lot of economic development and I think that there have been some good things that have been taking place 
and they're just, you know, the lack of solutions, I think, is uh, accentuated because of, you know, we get at the time that we don't have a whole lot of uh, water and we have a whole lot of heat. And that gets people uh, hot under the collar to say, oh, my gosh, you know, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that there are some things going on uh, that are happening uh, as, as, you know, the following the fields is one thing, but there could be a lot of additional work that could be done. I think the government and all the different entities that are lined up to kind of have a say in this particular fight, they need to communicate their message better. Mm-hmm. You know, Julia, uh, tied up in all this, of course, is the fact that we owe, as a state, we owe Texas water as part of the interstate compact. But with the outstanding debt and no water in the bank, so to speak, we don't have anything other than the hope of rain to bail us out in this deal. And how can we give water to another state when we don't have enough of our own? Is, is this time to sit down and really start to hammer perhaps a new deal with these compacts at this point? Well, I think that there's some some skepticism on the part of Texas that for that exact reason that lawmakers will agree to a deal. And what I'm hearing and understanding is that get those deals signed, get that dealt with, because there's so many other pieces to this. You know, the following is one, but, you know, dozens of proposals on the table relating to infrastructure, relating to closer metering, relating to closer monitoring. Um, there's so many things um, at play that the compact situations kind of just need to be settled and decided. And I think that the, the judges on the case are really open and wanting that to happen because having that then just drain more finances, drain more money that could be going into some of the infrastructure projects. That's a point. Because we're talking many millions. We're not talking about a you know few thousand to settle this issue that would could be used elsewhere. That's a very good point, Julia. Interesting. Um, you know, David, interestingly, Laura and Professor Dom touched on this, but the situation of impacting our entire ecosystem, not just humans, and I'm talking about the silvery minnow, is facing extinction with no, basically no habitat to live in. Does this serve as a marker or a motivator for climate action? I mean, remember the big kerfuffle back when, you know, the silvery minnow was first to be protected, people lost their right. minds, I'm sure you recall. Well, mm-hmm. again, it just goes back to the complexity of all of this. You know, we as citizens need to elect officials and water's an interesting thing because you can elect them at lots of levels. You can elect them, you can elect them at, you know, this municipal level, you can elect them in a water board, you can elect them. And, you know, we sort of need to, but we as citizens need to better understand what are the issues. I mean. Quite honestly, yes, you know, the the real ground being dry is very, it's alarming and it's a good visual, but, you know, the bulk of our water is dependent on the snowpack in Colorado in February, you know, which Mm -hmm. we're not seeing any pictures of that, which it was very light this year. So, I mean, you know, again, you, you know, in a way, the pictures of the Rio Grande being dry are alarming, but they're also part of the problem because they don't really tell us anything except the Rio Grande is dry, but that's not really the issue. The issue is we've mismanaged or we have to manage water better. We have to have better ideas. Can we pull water? You know, at some point in the eighties, I think Saudi Arabia was talking about towing icebergs to yes. Saudi Arabia. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, remember that. Sounds crazy, but it's an idea, right? Mm. Hey, this is where we are. Exactly right. Thank you all for trying to parse through this complex issue. It's not an easy one, but it is something we'll be covering closely throughout the rest of this year and moving forward. Thanks, Gene. Thanks to the panel. 
Now, last week on the podcast, I told you all about the apology from the Pope to indigenous people across Canada for the Catholic Church's role in the country's boarding school policies there. Those policies tore apart families, destroyed culture. Those are the words of the Catholic Church and the Pope, uh, but also everyone who has a firm understanding of what that situation was like. Um, so that apology, it by no means created a clean slate for the church and native people across North America. But according to the people that we've talked to, it is a start. In April, New Mexico and Focus correspondent Antonia Gonzalez spoke with two members of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition when the church first acknowledged those atrocities. In that interview, they lay out the path that the church needs to continue on in their mind to reach reconciliation. Samuel and Joni, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you so much for having us. Joni, start us off and just tell us, what was your reaction when you heard that Pope Francis had apologized to Canada's indigenous people for the Catholic Church's role in the Indian residential schools? Thank you for your question, Antonia. You know, for me personally, it brought up a lot of unresolved um, trauma, thinking about all of the research that I've conducted as a student currently at the University of Washington Tacoma pursuing a doctorate in educational leadership and also my work for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition based out of uh, Minnesota and also in deep reflection of my Pueblo Irish um, roots here in New Mexico and understanding the deeply entwined um, and very nuanced ways in which Catholicism has woven itself into our public culture. I also reflected on the ways in which our survivors and their families, as well as those who did not return home, may have um, had mixed feelings on the apology, whether it was accepted wholeheartedly or that it's a good start. But personally, I feel that um, going back to my own Pueblo and core values, forgiveness is one of the um, important pieces that we practice on a daily basis. And um, for me, I feel like it's a really good opportunity to begin having these conversations. And Samuel, your thoughts, what did you think when you heard Pope Francis apologize to Canada's indigenous people? Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having uh, our voice on on this segment right now, and I really appreciate the words shared by Joni. Um, it, it's a it's a complicated and nuanced setting, of course, as Joni mentions. Um, very much looking at it as uh, an important dialogue starter, and uh, I think number one, most importantly, the recognition of the harms done. I think is uh, always a good place to start. But as we know and what we have seen um, with uh, apologies and land acknowledgements made in the past, we must know that actions and uh, an intention to address the social conditions that could create a systemic uh, environment of oppression uh, such as the federal Indian boarding school policies uh, of the United States of Canada and um, on behalf of the Catholic Church, uh, issuing an apology, uh, of course, I think is important and, and, it, and it can't be um, 
it can't be understated that uh, for, for many survivors, descendants, families, relatives that have been deeply impacted by this, I know that there are a lot of folks that have been waiting a long time to hear words such as these. And so there is some healing power in that, um, in that the ability to transform um, those deep wounds into a place of, of hope, of growth, of, of healing. That said, we know that there's also a lot that the Catholic Church and, and other Christian denominations and settler nation governments can do to be able to uh, back up those words of apology. And um, the work of the, of the Healing Coalition uh, has for years been, been very adamant about uh, these Christian denominations as well as the federal government to increase the access of boarding school records and documents. Those documents that have been shown to generate uh, such healing power for relatives that are looking to find out more about their, their ancestors, um, their relatives that in some cases are still living uh, those documents often are uh, so powerful for families, for nations to be able to more deeply understand uh, the, 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 the scope of, of, of damage, the scope of the impacts uh, which are still ongoing. And Joni, the apology from Pope Francis was to indigenous people in Canada. What do you think people here in the United States when it comes to Native Americans, Alaska Natives who went through boarding school um, systems here, which a lot of our stories mirror what was going on in Canada. What do you think that Native people here wanna see from the Catholic Church? Thank you. I um, can agree more with my brother Sam and I definitely feel that this is a great step. There's so much momentum happening right now and um, much like our Métis, our Inuit and First Nations relatives in Canada, we want an acknowledgement as well here in the United States and it's important to also um, understand that each community and their respective experiences are going to be very different in terms of what they define as reparations, what that could look like. But in terms of a call to action for right now and taking those measurable steps, I think that the next um, opportunity would be for the Pope to come to the United States as well, to step foot on our soil here on Turtle Island and to begin having those conversations with our communities. And anything to add to that, Samuel, about not only just um, here, you know, the lower 48 tribes, but also people in Alaska as well that um, you work with have some similar boarding school stories? It is an inescapable uh, entanglement that, that is clearly there. And, and one of the things that I think is, is really helpful to try to understand where and how this apology has come to be, um, it, it didn't come out of nowhere. And we understand that with the, fi the findings of First Nations peoples, um, with the, the ground penetrating radar and magnetometry cemetery survey results of, of the past year, um, they don't they, they have not been had under um, just a in a vacuum. They have not emerged as a, a random set of occurrences and folks that are not as um, aware of, of this ongoing work that has been happening um, on Turtle Island for you know many decades, many generations of truth seeking, of truth telling, 
um, had a, a very consequential moment in uh, with the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, in in the early 2000s. And uh, so Canada is in some in some ways, shape or form uh, a bit further ahead than the United States. As it relates to the work in the coalition, we um, helped to write uh, both H.R. 5444 and Senate Bill 2907, the Truth and Healing Commission Bill on Indian Boarding Schools Policy Act. Um, and we are generating a lot of interest, a lot of uh, doing a lot of education work and advocacy around the bill. But this is work that needs to be codified into law and needs to be uh, included within the political discourse of the United States. There is a national investigation here in the United States led by Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, and the coalition is taking part in that. Why is it important to uncover these documents, to have people share their stories, and it is traumatizing. Every single person in Indian country has been impacted general, generations by Indian boarding schools. So we're not talking about a history that's a long time ago. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It's still impacting our tribal communities and it's, it's hard to talk about. So Joni, why is it so important for this investigation to uncover um, documents, but also just share with the public? It's so important and critical right now because we don't know, as of today still, how many children went missing while at federal Indian-run boarding schools. And I think that there's so much momentum happening right now with um, our Pueblo sister, Secretary Holland, to be able to make um, some really great strides in this area and to call to action um, the opportunity to have access to these records, to church records, to records at the National Archive and um, other locations, and also to really understand the intergenerational impacts of trauma that it's had on communities. And we've seen these ripple effects carried out through the timeline of federal Indian law and policy and looking at education being one of those long-standing pieces in which uh, children and families um, and the push for English-only literacy, the push for um, the, the, the Catholic denomination uh, within um, communities here in New Mexico to be the way forward. And now we're in a race with time to save our cultures and languages, to heal our trauma, to raise our families. And, um, you know, I, I feel that this is also generational work. It's um, the prayers of our ancestors who are not very far removed, um, six or seven generations back, who attended places like Carlisle Indian Industrial School and who did not make it home. And those who experienced trauma while at school and or the loss of their peers and then returning to their communities and trying to reintegrate themselves into um, Pueblo culture or indigenous culture in general, we see those effects today in um, particularly uh, families and at the communal level when we think about nation building, when we think about the opportunities that we have to um, continue the conversation around how we reclaim our children through education and language. Well, thank you for that, Samuel and Joni. Thank you both for joining us today and sharing a little bit about your thoughts on the Pope's apology and the work of the coalition. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Nietzsche. Yes, thank you for having us on the show.
Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast this week. If you enjoyed it, please check out our show Friday nights at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. If that doesn't work for you, Friday night's obviously pretty busy for most people. We do repost it on our YouTube channel so you can watch those individual segments and the full show there. Now, this week's show will be a bit different. It's called Our Land, The First Five Years. It's a recap of some of the great work Our Land executive producer Laura Paskus and the rest of our team have done over those past five years when it comes to understanding our unique environment here in New Mexico. There's a lot of great insight you'll want to hear and some amazingly beautiful videography from our production staff. Again, that's Friday night at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. Now stay with us here at the podcast because later in the week, Laura's going to hop on with a bit of a bonus episode and an interview you won't hear anywhere else. She got a chance to talk with U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich about quite a few different important topics, uh, like the impact of the January 6th hearings and that proposal to store nuclear waste from around the country here in our state. You'll hear his perspective. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, That episode's going to drop later this week. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio. For August 1st, 2022, this is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everybody.